From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's the final countdown to the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Team USA includes athletes from Colorado like free skier Burke Irving, born and raised in Winter Park. He joins us to talk about what it takes to master artistry in the air and what spinning around in your room can tell you about his sport. Then, home values and rents are rising at a dizzying rate. There was a sign that said, affordable units available. Affordable for whom? Now, state lawmakers are rushing to try to address Colorado's housing crisis. They do have one ace up their sleeve, a whole lot of federal money. And later, what's in a name? Why would you have brought a broom to our conversation about broom field? Chances are the answer is not what you think. give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Winter Olympics start this week in Beijing, and Team USA is filled with Colorado athletes, 23 of them. That's a tenth of the team. Snowboarders, sledders, jumpers, biathletes, and a lot of skiers, including Burke Irving. He's a free skier born and raised in Winter Park. Hey, Burke. Hey, morning, Nathan. How are you? I'm all right. So you'll be competing in the half pipe in Beijing. What's your hardest trick? Um, yeah, I'm really excited. Very honored to be competing for the U.S. and uh, China coming up. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah, definitely a bit nervous. I got some big tricks I want to throw down, but I'd say my hardest one would probably be a, a double cork sixteen twenty. And what is that? Um, yeah, so it's four and a half rotations and two flips. So basically like two back flips and then four and a half full 360s. Man, how high in the air do you have to be to do that? Um, it kind of varies for everybody, but for me, I have to go like at least 10 to 15 feet above like the 22 foot walls. So then, yeah. Pretty, pretty high. <laughs> is that pure momentum or do you have to jump when you're up there? How does that work? Um, so it's like all like pumping and like G forces through the bottom of the half pipe. So in the transitions of it down into the bottom, you're like pumping and pushing your legs, try and like gain momentum and go as fast as you possibly can. And it's different for almost every half pipe because they're all on different slopes and different angles. Um, but China, I've skied there before. It's pretty fast, steep half pipe. It's on a pretty steep pitch. And so it's, yeah, it's just all like the momentum you carry through the half pipe and kind of where you land as well, like high on the transition, like high on the wall. Whereas like, that's kind of where you want to be rather than down low in the transition, like coming into the next hit, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, is it typical that when you're going through a run, you're going to do your toughest trick? Or is it all about finesse and choosing what you're going to do to make it the best for the judges? Um, it kind of goes both ways, for sure. Like, you pick and choose your battles. Uh, for me, personally, it's definitely... I'll prioritize, like, doing a trick that it's going to look better and be more, like, like that I can execute better, you know? So yeah. that's kind of what it comes down to for me. If I have, say, one trick that's a bit bigger on the rotation side and difficulty but it's not done as well or executed as well. I'm going to go for the more mellow trick, more mellow version so that I can make it look better and make it look cleaner and smoother. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. led you to free skiing and, and, and not just downhill? Um, I honestly don't know. I think, I mean, my parents put me on skis when I was two um, and I was super into it. And then I actually snowboarded for a few years because a bunch of my friends were snowboarders growing up. Um, And I think it might have been the snowboard side. I just was like, I think I was just always into jumping off of stuff and like (laughs) just doing all sorts of like crazy things. I was just never content with just skiing down the run. I always wanted to catch some sort of air. And I think that just stuck with me through my like years of growing up skiing in winter park it was just um yeah i'd always want to jump off little cliffs or side hits or all that you know and i think that just grew into something a lot bigger yeah and and i i read you did your first 360 at five years old yep exactly i would always (laughs) be out there with my dad he'd have like his camera and he'd just film me going down the run like doing 360s usually falling but (laughs) yeah it was a good time (laughs) So what do you think about when, when you're in the air, uh, does everything kind of go away or are you focused on exactly how to land and how to turn and all that stuff? Um, actually it's a lot of it is like muscle memory, you know, like we huh. have training camps. We actually have one right now in copper, but we have these training camps and we do all these tricks like over and over and over just to get the repetition of it. Um, and at the top you're like trying to focus in on what your run is and, where you need to land on the wall and how much you need to like push off the wall in certain spots and all that. But then as soon as you drop in, it's like, I personally am not thinking about anything. I'm just kind of going and my body's kind of doing the work. It's, I mean, half the time I'll get to the bottom. I don't even remember what I just did, you know, (laughs) I'll be like, well, that was crazy. It's just like, it's almost like you're body just takes over and your mind's just kind of along for the ride you know and it's it's a pretty cool feeling is that the finesse of the sport you know that casual viewers might just not see yeah for sure I mean because it looks like I mean everything is very calculated and um and all but it's kind of once you're in there it's just everybody does stuff a certain way and all of our bodies are working differently and like doing everything so different and um yeah everybody's kind of got a different style and a different approach to skiing which i i think also draws me to it because i think that's super cool there are 23 coloradans on this team you got to know a lot of them Do, do you see them as friends or competitors um it's we have a super cool relationship all of us like none of us are real like 
um, competitors against each other. I mean, obviously at the end of the day, we all want to win, but um, we're all like really good friends. We've all grown up together and like just everyone on the team, we have such a good relationship and we all get along so well. So we always want the best for one another. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, we definitely all want to win, but it never like gets in the way of our friendships or relationships. Yeah. For those of us who stay on the ground when we ski or or maybe all the time, what's something we may not know about what you do? Maybe about how you learn to rotate like that when you're up in the air. Um, I'd say for like the average viewer who hasn't tried like jumping or spinning and doing all that is kind of, um, I guess when you watch like a half pipe event, you see people spinning both directions. Like, so left and right on both walls all the way down and if you would like to you can try and like spin both directions like just standing in your living room or something like that and um you'll have a very dominant way of spinning and so for a lot of us it's left and so trying to learn those other tricks to the right which is completely unnatural to us i think is yeah one of the things that's like really hard to notice and like hard to comprehend unless you've actually like tried to spin or rotate that other direction because it's like a completely new feeling so so if i stand in my living room and spin one direction i'll naturally feel which way feels more comfortable and that's what you do when you're first starting out yep exactly so i started spinning left and i had a rude awakening when i uh was kind of coming into the competition scene and had to start spinning right and I was like, this just does not make any sense. Like, how in the world? <laughs> and just over time, you kind of slowly begin to figure it out. But it'll, you'll always have one way that feels way more natural than the other. You don't leave for China until next week, I understand. And you got to test negative for COVID before you go. What's it been like to have COVID hanging over your Olympic career? Yeah, it's been super stressful for sure. Um, I mean, I completely understand the rules that are put in place. You know, it's for everybody's safety. It's just, yeah, extremely um, nerve-wracking, you know, like especially just with how rampant it's running right now. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we've all just been super safe. We've been in our team bubble, like not like kind of going outside, not getting food anywhere. You know, it's all takeout. Um. So it's definitely been stressful, but I think just taking like the right precautions and being super safe is, I'm sure it'll be fine, uh, knock on wood, but yeah, um, yeah, definitely a stressful time. Yeah. Has it, has it affected your head a little bit? Or are you able to separate COVID from, from what you're doing on the, on the uh, half pipe? I mean, yeah, when I'm skiing, I'm not like really thinking about it. I'm kind of just doing my stuff, doing what I have to do. It's more so just out it's just like an outside thought you know it's like a lingering thought that's always there when i'm like not skiing when i'm like going and doing other stuff in town um but it's definitely almost like it'd be it's good to like keep it in the back of my mind you know because sometimes like taking laps on the chair all that you know like forgetting to put a mask up in the lift line like Mm. it's just yeah it's like it's that whole sort of thing but um yeah we're all like taking every precaution we can to just be super safe and stay healthy. Well, Burke, I really appreciate you joining me today and uh, best of luck in Beijing. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Burke Irving is one of 23 Coloradans headed to Beijing on the U.S. Olympic team. He went to Middle Park High School in Granby, where his mom teaches Spanish. His dad is the director of the Winter Park Ski Patrol. And for the record, his sister is said to be a great skier, too. The Beijing Winter Olympics start this week. With home values and rents rising at a dizzying rate, state lawmakers are rushing to try to address Colorado's housing crisis. They do have one ace up their sleeve, a whole lot of federal money. The Purplish team is taking a closer look at this. Let's join CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee and Public Affairs Reporter Andrew Kenny. Hey, listen. So a little while ago, I headed to the Jefferson Park neighborhood in northwest Denver, and I sat down at this coffee shop on the first floor of a condo tower to meet up with a homeowner named Julie, who told me the kind of funny story of how she ended up living there. I came to walk uh, one day around the park and saw this building, and there was a sign that said, affordable units available. And I went, and like my little angry activist self was like, affordable for whom? As it turns out, they meant affordable to her. They really did. Six out of the 60 condos were designated for lower price levels, and so Julie decided that she was going to make it work. I was able to just eke it through. I sold my car (laughs) to help, like, make my down payment. I applied for the down payment assistance program. I cobbled it together, like, through the skin of my teeth and closed on this place at the beginning of July. Um, 2008. And it was right as the crisis started unfolding. Now, today, more than a decade later, housing costs in northwest Denver have essentially tripled, quadrupled, quintupled. It's a similar story in cities and towns across Colorado and, frankly, the whole country. That condo, meanwhile, is what's kept Julie in her neighborhood. Because I was able to eke into an affordable place to live, I was able to stay here and witness a lot of the transformation of this community. Now, this is a really common story, but there's a reason I wanted you to hear from Julie in particular, and that's because she's actually State Senator Julie Gonzalez. And in this new legislative session, she is one of the key people shaping how the state will respond to a housing crisis that has somehow gotten even worse during the pandemic. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics and policy. I'm Megan Verlee, filling in for Benta Berklin on this episode. And I'm Andy Kenny. I've been looking into a monumental effort to make it possible for more people to afford housing in Colorado, what it might accomplish, where it could fall short, and the big, big questions it raises about the future of the state. Now, Andy, this is one of the things that Republicans and Democrats at the State House have said they want to focus on this session. Yeah. Uh, we heard it a lot in the opening day speeches. Uh, we've heard them talk about it uh, really since the legislature adjourned last session. Mm-hmm. Why is this top of mind right now? Let's pretend that we don't have to live in Colorado and aren't intimately feeling it ourselves. Yeah, let's pretend. Well, uh, let me set the stage with the housing market itself. Uh, I think everyone knows that we've been in an increasing housing crunch pretty much since Julie bought that condo in 
2008, or since we started to recover from the Great Recession, rather. Mm. Now, that may be a surprise to some people, but there was kind of a glimmer of hope or a glimmer of something back around 2019 when rent increases and housing prices finally started slowing down and flattening out. That was a hot minute. Yeah, it was a hot minute because the pandemic came and things just exploded. You can almost draw it exactly to March of 2020 when everything really began to deviate very heavily from the norm. So that's Matt Laprino, a spokesperson for the Colorado Association of Realtors. The housing market, he explained, is now seeing 20% price gains. And that's just on top of the mammoth increases that we already had coming out of the Great Recession. And at this point, homes in Denver, for example, are selling in five days typically. And, you know, like realtors make money when prices rise. But even they're really, really worried about where things are heading right now. With nothing to buy, I don't see prices decreasing anytime soon. And I believe it's going to probably come to a point where people might not be looking at Denver as a viable alternative as a place to live anymore. What's driving this? Is this an in-migration thing? Is it just more people want to live in Colorado than we have houses for? Um, you know, it's that's part of what's been happening over the entire time of this housing crunch. But things are kind of different and new in this latest phase. It's now really a national problem. Prices are rising almost anywhere that you could think of or, you know, in a lot of places. You're seeing a ton of new factors like continued low interest rates, government economic support through the pandemic, people moving around because of remote work, the pandemic's interruption to housing construction, all just pouring fuel on this fire that's really been burning again for a decade at this point. And... Why aren't there enough houses? I mean, have we been building places for people? Well, we had a big drop in housing production coming out of the recession, actually. You know, in the 2010s, housing production was basically back at 1960s levels. It was a 40% drop from the previous decade. And we're now paying the piper for that. And now things are just accelerating in totally new ways. And I don't know, the way people are talking about this housing crisis seems to be changing even in these last couple of years, even if you thought it couldn't get worse. You know, Kimball Krangle is an affordable housing developer who's worked on the policy side. She said that 2020, 2021 just continued to surprise her in ways that she couldn't have imagined before, to the point that, as she puts it. I mean, I, I do feel like we're on the precipice of an economic reckoning. And what's at stake is the Colorado culture. It's not just saying Do our businesses stay open? It's that we're taking care of each other in a way that's healthy. So you're saying that demand is ramping up, supply is down. Uh, Mm -hmm. I took Economics 101. (laughs) The market is clearly out of whack here. One thing that I've seen just in the reporting on this issue is how statewide it's become. Uh, In the decade plus I've lived in Colorado, when I moved here, Sure, the Denver metro area was unaffordable. Boulder was unaffordable. But there were a lot of other places that weren't talking about this problem. Now, you know, we hear from the mountains that the housing stock is all turning into Airbnbs and and nobody can live anywhere. We're hearing from Pueblo that prices are going up and and Grand Junction and Durango and, and Colorado Springs. This is now a statewide concern. Yeah. And I spent some time talking to people the last couple of weeks just to reground myself in what this means for everyone. Even being fairly new to living in the high country, it's personal and it's like super frustrating. I heard from Nate Feflick, a snowboard instructor who was working at the resort, tending bar, and then on his off days, he was a logger in the forest. 
all to live with four guys in two rooms. Like I need personal space to like kind of process and like wind down from my day. That kind of goes away within those closed quarters. I heard from Jeremiah Miller, who makes $120,000 a year in software, but doesn't have great credit or savings yet. And so he's thinking he's going to have to move to Pittsburgh. I've heard from people who just feel like they're getting ground out. Robert Maxey told me that he barely scrimped together on a federal job salary, $60,000 a year at this point, barely scrimped together enough to afford a one-bedroom condo. People talk about America being the richest country in the world. I do not feel rich. I feel very, very poor. He said he's getting pushed to the edge. It destroyed me mentally. I was always exhausted. Okay, so I think most of us living in Colorado have some personal story about our connection to this troubled housing market. Uh, As we just heard from Julie, lawmakers are living it. So what are they going to do about it? What's going to be really interesting about the next few months is that this time of really sharp crisis is actually coinciding with the time of lots of new resources. The federal government has made billions of dollars in COVID relief funds available to the state. Lawmakers say they're going to spend quite a big chunk of that on affordable housing, on making housing more accessible. And for context here, this is uh, federal COVID relief money that Congress approved to help the states recover from the pandemic. And so Colorado policymakers have said, well, the thing that really helps us recover is helping people have housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and let me give you just a sense of what that could mean. So like a recent typical year for Colorado, 2018. State might have put $25 million from state revenues into affordable housing, maybe add on another 10 or $20 million from federal sources, like $45 million total for the statewide response. And what are they talking about this year? So this year, they've got $400 million of the federal money earmarked for housing purposes. And that's on top of some already substantial new sources that state lawmakers have created in the last couple of years. What is it going to actually go to? Like, get concrete for me, too. Forgive that pun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) People are going to be looking for concrete because the lion's share of this is going to be going into supporting the development of affordable housing, designated affordable housing. So units like the one Julie Gonzalez bought. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It'll be going out as loans, low-interest loans and grants to support developers and nonprofits and governments that want to build that kind of stuff, that kind of designated unit. Well, we live in a state with 7 million people. So how many units does $400 million actually build? Does it make a difference? (laughs) Yeah, I've I've been asking that question, you know, not just how many units it's going to build, like what will it do to rent for me? Will it decrease my rent? Mm -hmm. Um, What does it mean to transform the housing economy and Got a lot of uh, my favorite and least favorite answer, which is good question. That usually means the people trying to answer your question don't know and need a moment to think. Correct. Representative Dylan Roberts, who was on that task force to spend the housing money and represents the high country where they've got a pronounced housing crisis, said that question you just posed is a fundamental question that we tackled and wrestled with. And the truth is, there's no clear answer to that. Kathy Elderman with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless said, It's so hard. And we've had a lot of discussions about, like, can we identify, like, a number of actual units to be built? And the answer is no. So, long story short, I didn't get a lot of specifics about what it could do, which, fair, you know, legislature hasn't even approved these plans yet. But we do know how they'll probably spend it, like the big pots. We want to use this money to invest in things that are happening already on the ground in our communities. Okay, so if they can't 
say, the overall number, are there even, like, projects out there that we know would benefit? Yeah, this is what we can say. Like, here's, here's a good example. The Yampa Valley Housing Authority near Steamboat Springs recently acquired 500 acres of land that it got through an anonymous financial donation. You know, that's amazing. That's a huge chunk of land. Yeah. But really expensive to develop on that scale. You have to build infrastructure, you know, the buildings themselves, which is not easy in this <laughs> economy. So what Dylan Roberts said is that this federal money could hopefully drop in there and get that construction moving way, way sooner than you'd see otherwise. And in that case, like, yeah, 500 acres could be transformational for Steamboat Springs. Long term, does this move the Colorado housing market? Does it make it affordable for everyone? Great question, as uh, <laughs> many sources have told me this week. I think that what we can say is that on the one hand, we know it's going to build a lot of units that will most likely improve people's lives, let them live closer to work, let them have more space, improve their children's lives. But when I asked the director of the Arapahoe County Housing Authority, Peter Lafari, what he expected for the market as a whole, would this really be transformational? He said, yeah, status quo, man, status quo, unfortunately. Andy, if there's one thing I know about the legislature, it's that spending money can often be a lot easier than changing policy, especially when it's a lot of money, especially when it's federal money. Uh Um, So I feel like we've talked about the easy part of this issue, which is that there's a big pot of money. It will go into a solution that already is out there, which are these types of affordable housing loan funds. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's make it harder. Are lawmakers actually looking at policy changes that they think could make it more affordable for people on average or below average incomes to buy a home or rent a home. Yeah, it sounds like you're asking, like, what happens when you get outside of that capital A affordable? What happens for somebody who, like I mentioned earlier, makes 60000 a year and may not qualify? Exactly. Your guy who's going to have to move to Pittsburgh because he can't afford housing on 120000 a year. Yeah, I don't know what will happen for him, but we're hearing some different things from both parties, actually, about more tangible, granular things. You know, they want to help mobile home park residents buy their own communities Mm. and take control of that. They want to support prefabricated housing by giving incentives to make it easier to do everything from building mobile homes to, like, embracing new construction styles. They want prefabricated housing factories to come to Colorado. The Republicans are talking about encouraging seniors to rent out their homes or giving tax credits that would allow people to write off their rent. So different ways of nibbling around the edges and trying to make life a little bit easier for your market rate renter or buyer. Okay, but to go back to what we talked about at the beginning in this episode, it seems like the fundamental problem is supply and demand. We're a desirable state to live in. A lot of people are moving here from wealthier markets where they can sell homes for more and buy the homes that are out of the reach of a lot of people living in Colorado. Are they doing anything beyond the modular housing and the prefab housing to try and, I guess, course correct the market? That's what some people want to see them do. Peter Lafari, who we heard from a little bit earlier, said that the housing market's fundamentally broken and people like him, who you might classify as yes in my backyarders or supply siders, They really want to see the state government intervene in ways that make it way easier to build housing of all types. Mm. Housing production in the 2010s was down like 40 percent. So there is a supply and demand element here. The problem is that some of the people who have the most influence over the supply, they ain't working in the legislature. It would say more. (laughs) They work at City Hall. Oh, yeah. You know, city lawmakers are in charge of stuff like 
land use. How many units can you build on a piece of property? Building codes. And that's kind of a new and forbidden frontier that we've only seen state lawmakers in Colorado start to tiptoe into. So I know like in California, the state has gotten pretty aggressive about Mm -hmm. trying to force local governments to allow density to do away with these single family homes that don't house as many people as a condo building, say. I'm guessing that Colorado lawmakers aren't trying to pick that fight. Yeah, I mean, California doesn't want to knock down your house, but they are saying with this new law that pretty universally you can build two where once you can only build Mm -hmm. one. Colorado, there's very little appetite for state lawmakers to kind of take that stick and (laughs) tell cities like, hey, make room for density. Um, But we are hearing about it from a couple different angles. You know, I asked Kenneth Landers, he's the deputy policy director for the Senate Republicans about this. And what he basically said was that, yeah, they want to go further than just funding and they want to get rid of some of the limits on private industry and let the supply of housing ramp up. There's a consensus in this building that we need to invest more in affordable housing. We're happy to move forward there. But there are other phenomena going on in the state that are clearly contributing to to the lack of inventory. And one of those is sort of anti-growth ordinances that we're seeing at, at local level. There's a Republican bill that would, uh, you know how like cities like Golden and Lakewood have these kind of limits on new construction? They, yeah, as I recall, Lakewood, it was voter passed and yeah. whew, boy, that was a big story. Yeah, there's a Republican proposal, it's not going to pass because it's going to the kill committee, that would have outlawed those types of bans from being put in place. And Andy, I'm actually remembering that Last year, there was a bill that became law from the other side of the aisle, from Democrats who are in the majority, that incentivizes local governments to build more and to build more densely. Uh, If Republicans are now saying we need to stick to drive local governments toward more building, Democrats last year were saying, well, let's let's try this carrot over here. Yeah, that's exactly right. Democrats have started to dabble with those incentives and You know, they are saying, and you're hearing from some of the more influential lawmakers on housing, that, like, they ain't going to get into land use. Because there are a few municipalities who have taken on very clear anti-growth initiatives. But they will support the cities with extra money, and they will support them in making laws that make it easier for cities to pass pro-housing, pro-density policies. Interesting. You know, as we talk more and more about growing our way out of this problem, what's tickling in the back of my head are all the questions that we get to the newsroom from the public about, does Colorado have a carrying capacity? I mean, our climate change unit is constantly reporting on how there is not enough water in this state for all the water users. You know, the the town of Fountain last year was saying, we can't put water in all the taps that people want to hook up to our town. Severance just put a limit on new taps, or I think put a moratorium on new taps. Do we have a problem where basically the demand for housing is going to run into the natural limits of the state? Yeah, it's a really gigantic and interesting question, and one I was kind of hoping that we'd pose in this episode (laughs) so that somebody else could answer it. Um, Lord knows we don't have the answer. I don't have the answer, but when I posed that to a couple economists with the Colorado Futures Center, Phyllis Hartley and Jennifer Newcomer, who are, you know, brilliantly guiding me through the intricacies of the housing market, it was the one thing that drew them up short. They said that water is the gorilla in the room that's not been quite talked about. It's kind of looming over. So where does this leave the average person trying to live in Colorado? I mean, the people that you talk to, do they see any hope? In different ways. I mean, 
Yes, the one guy I talked to lives in Steamboat now. Maybe he'll get one of those units. There's a strong chance he could qualify for one of those units when it gets built. But for others, it's really hard to imagine anything bending the way this market is going, deflecting it. Um, you know, Robert Maxey, who's stuck in that one-bedroom condo, who's really suffering with it, not holding out hope for government intervention. He is holding out hope that this is dark. For me, my personal hopes is that the market's going to crash any day. And that'll open the door, like it opened the door for a lot of people back in 2008 and 9 for him to finally buy something more suitable. So pretty evident that a lot of people are so locked out of the current housing market that all they can hope for <laughs> is that it resets. Well, uh, for a show about politics and policy, I think uh, this might be one of those places where we have to admit there is a limit to how much government may be able to do in this circumstance. That said, I feel like the future is never set. So we might be having a completely different conversation about housing in a year or two. Well, you know what fascinates me about this housing topic is that everyone sees it now and it collides with the political philosophies in interesting ways. It's clear that legislators are more willing than ever to talk about it. And we're going to be there to see what they decide and where it goes and what it says about the future of Colorado. And you'll be here with us. Hopefully. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny and public affairs editor Megan Verlee. Purplish is CPR's podcast about politics. Catch this and all of the episodes throughout the legislative session everywhere you get your podcast, whether it's NPR One, Apple, or at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. Colorado has had a medical aid and dying law on the books for five years, but a new study suggests physicians don't have the information and education they want and need, which means patients might not have access to care they want and need. CPR's Claire Cleveland reports. Sky O'Neill's husband died in Holland in the 80s. It was her first intimate experience with death, and there was something unique about it. He was at home. I remember as he was nearing the last day of his life, there was a nurse all day long at the house. The physician came over in the evening. Six months after her husband died, O'Neill's father died, this time in the United States, in a hospital. But my thought at that moment was, this is how people die in the United States, and it's not how they have to. And that was the pivotal moment, was watching him die. My husband died this incredibly beautiful, peaceful death. And I thought, gosh, this is, this can happen? So my crusade began then. O'Neill has worked in hospice care ever since, first as a nurse and then as a physician's assistant. And now she works for Denver Health's Medical Aid in Dying program. If you look back at the history of death, um, we always died at home, right, for Forever, we died at home until hospital systems were built, and then we started dying in hospitals. 
which was never the point of hospital. And so now we're turning back around to to being able to die at home. And now we added in this right to die peacefully at home when you choose, if you're already dying. Between 2017 and 2020, more than 550 terminally ill adults in Colorado were prescribed lethal medication to end their lives. More patients have sought medical aid in dying each year since a state law was passed allowing the medication in 2016. But access is still an issue. Eric Campbell is a researcher at the University of Colorado Hospital. When a medical service or procedure is available and doctors see patients who potentially could utilize that service, doctors need to be prepared and they need to have the knowledge to do things like discuss medical aid with patients. Campbell's team found that more than 80 percent of doctors say they're willing to discuss medical aid in dying with a patient. And nearly 90 percent say they would make a referral for their patient to receive the medication. Campbell found those high rates of willingness a little surprising, considering the cultural friction due to moral or religious objections that medical aid in dying faces. Medical aid in dying was enacted a few years ago, and it's one of the most contentious health policy and bioethics issues. But Campbell found a gap between doctors being willing to refer patients for treatment and doctors being willing to treat patients. A big gap. Less than 30 percent of doctors were willing to serve as the attending physician, and less than half of doctors were willing to serve as the second consulting physician. State law requires both. This means patients seeking medical aid in dying might not have access and have to go places like Denver Health to seek treatment. O'Neill says that barrier comes from a lack of information and education amongst patients, physicians, and hospices. And Campbell's research backs this up. There's a need for education, not just for physicians who haven't done this, but for physicians as well. Now, of course, the doctors who had participated in, as an attending or a consulting physician were much less like likely to say that knowledge was a barrier, but it was still high among that group. So clearly providing information to physicians is an actionable event. Medical professionals across the state have asked how to counsel patients or even what is required by Colorado's End of Life Options Act. O'Neill and Denver Health had planned a conference. So we're going to do a history and then we were going to talk about our program. We were having the pharmacists come to talk about the, the nuance of the medications. We were going to have case studies. We were going to have puppies. Um, we were going to have a panel of family members. The conference was canceled because of COVID. They are hoping to reschedule. For CPR News, I'm Claire Cleveland. A once thriving town in Weld County could become America's newest national park. Representatives Jonah Goose, a Democrat, and Ken Buck, a Republican, are co-sponsoring a bill to see what it would take to give that designation to Deerfield. In the early 1900s, the little farming community on the plains east of Denver embodied the dreams of the black people who homesteaded there. People were very hopeful, and they really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. That's Terry Nelson from Denver's Blair Caldwell African American Research Library. She's one of several experts in a documentary about Deerfield called Remnants of a Dream. It was directed by Charles Knuckles. Deerfield thrived for a time from about 1915 to 1920, the zenith of that time really being 1917 to 1920. 
20, but there were fairs that would be held in Deerfield, and the governor would come out to award prizes for the most prized fruits and vegetables grown, or the best livestock or cattle that was grown. So there were picnics and fishing parties and dancing. There were churches, um, a missionary society. Deerfield was a thriving community. The community was founded by a man named O.T. Jackson. O.T. Jackson believed that a generation beyond emancipation, uh, African Americans had created religious institutions and educational institutions, but now it was time to develop industrial businesses that would provide employment opportunities. He came to Colorado in 1877. He settled in Boulder. He was a caterer, a restaurateur, And eventually, um, he became involved in Colorado politics. He followed the teachings of Booker T. Washington, one of the prominent race leaders at the time, uh, who believed that the the key was a back-to-the-land movement, where the best practices would lie in self-help for blacks, a community where African Americans would cooperate with one another, both in business and civic activities, and create a place where people could have some input and thrive. Because, uh, let's face it, blacks were systematically excluded from many of the public sector uh, systems created by the white majority. It's important to note Deerfield is spelled D-E-A-R, not D-E-E-R, because the fields were so dear to the people who live there. The idea was that this was such an important effort to these people that it was something that was special, emotional, even spiritual to many of them. At its peak, about 300 people called Deerfield home, but lack of water and the Dust Bowl would prove to be the community's undoing. Deerfield was a dry land farming operation. They did not have access to water. It took money to buy water rights. So they started when there was a wet cycle in the Colorado climate, and they could grow anything during that time, during that wet cycle, and they did. They really thrived, really prospered. But once that wet cycle ended, the water dried up, and then you had the rural depression that started in the early 1920s. And the Dust Bowl was really the, the final, final blow to the colony. That's Charles Knuckles. He directed Remnants of a Dream, the story of Deerfield, Colorado. We spoke in February 2020. Deerfield is on the National Register of Historic Places. There's preservation work underway to save what little is left of the town and to make it a stop on the planned National Heritage Trails project. And now Republican Ken Buck and Democrat Jonah Goose are co-sponsoring a bill that asks the Interior Department to consider adding Deerfield to the National Park System. This isn't the first historic preservation effort by Buck and Nagoose. They're also working to get Amache, a former Japanese internment camp in Colorado, declared a national historic site. Colorado has 64 counties. The youngest is Broomfield, which just turned 20. Incidentally, the city of Broomfield recently turned 60, which got us wondering, what's Broomfield named after? Ryan Warner has the answer. Well, sort of. 
If someone's going to know how Broomfield got its name, it'll be the guy who's sweeping, David Allison. He's the coordinator of Broomfield's museum, which is in an old depot. That's correct. This is the old train depot for Broomfield. 1909 is when it was built. Why would you have brought a broom to our conversation about Broomfield? Well, Broomfield's name origin, most folks attribute it to the broom corn crop, which many people thought kind of grew around this area in the 1800s, late 1800s. Broom corn. Help us understand what that is. Broom corn is not corn in the way that we think about it. It is, in fact, a sorghum-related plant. And so uh, what you do with broom corn is harvest it, let it dry, take off the small berries that are on top, and then you kind of tie it together into a broom. And that's what you were sweeping with. Now, As you set that idea up, it sounded like there might be some doubt as to whether this oft-told tale is actually the reason Broomfield is called Broomfield. Yeah, that's, that's right. One of the other theories is that Broomfield, England, um, UK, which has a very beautiful castle, may have been kind of the namesake. You know, Anglophiles coming into this area really might have loved the castle there and wanted to name it after Broomfield. But we can't find much evidence of that. But David Allison, it is your job to know where the name Broomfield came from, right? I mean, isn't this the most fundamental question if you're the head of the Depot Museum? Right. Well, you know, folks in Iowa or Illinois might argue, you know, our Broomfields were the first Broomfields. This is patently false. Do not believe those people from Iowa and from Illinois. Because as you go back and look in the postal records, we found definitive evidence that Broomfield, Colorado, though it is further west and you would you know, assume that the earlier settled areas in the, in the country might have had precedence on the name, is not in fact true. Broomfield, Colorado is the first Broomfield in the United States. It's the first Broomfield in the United States. I see what you did there. You tried to deflect my question with another interesting answer. But how is it that that we actually don't know the provenance of the name? Is there just a dearth of materials from that time or what? Yeah, absolutely. So what we have to do as historians is work with the evidence that we have. And if we don't have the evidence, we can't make the assumption. We think the best answer is broomcorn, but we don't know that for sure. Are you frustrated by this dearth? Do you, I don't know, have like an all points bulletin out for people who might know the story? You know, some mysteries are just nice to have and to embrace and to not quite know, but to constantly be wondering, be searching, be thinking about it. And you know what? That's one of those things that here in this town, at least, brings people some joy. Some joy. Now, Broomfield could be a last name, couldn't it? Have you ever met a Broomfield? Yeah, I know that there are some Broomfields in the historic record. As a matter of fact, at one point, I saw an editorial, somebody saying we should change the origin of the name or kind of have the heritage of a Broomfield who had some interaction in Colorado at some point. I don't think that ever really caught on because, quite frankly, the Broomfield in in question wasn't all that notable of a person. But (laughs) that's a delicate or maybe a less delicate way of putting that. But I understand what you mean. This was not an exceptional human who, for instance, owned a ton of land and gifted it to someone or, you know, was a military hero. Exactly. And to that point, a lot of the land that's now Broomfield was actually owned by Adolf Zang, who is a brewer in Denver. Uh, He owned 4,000 acres of what's now Broomfield. And actually, Zang's spur was almost the name of Broomfield. Broomfield persisted. It predated Zang's spur. And so that's probably why it won out. 
Zhang's spur, in other words, a spur on a rail line, I'm guessing. That's correct. It was a spur on the rail line. It was basically a way for him to get the barley and, you know, hops and those sorts of things down to his brewery in Denver. Broomfield as a place long predated, though, the incorporation. That's right. Yeah, Broomfield was named Broomfield and a spot that the post office recognized as a location where you could get your mail by 1884. But it was not incorporated as a city until really there were quite a few more people here to make it, you know, viable as a city. Well, I feel like while we're in Broomfield, we ought to get another cool fact or two. And I have a feeling that here at this depot, it's probably just the right place to ask the question. Would you be interested in a bank robbery story? I mean, does anyone say no to that, David? Well, I've never found anybody yet, but <laughs> I, can, I can share briefly that the bank robbery happened in 1929. You know, people were starting to get hard up in 1929, right? The, the depression was right on the minds of everybody and economic systems were in peril. And Broomfield was still a very small town, but it had a bank uh, with actually a fairly sizable safe. But a few bank robbers uh, were able to actually abscond with all of the money in the safe. Nobody ever found it. It's kind of an unsolved case. Uh, the bank then installed a much larger and more kind of intensive style safe that's still here today down in Broomfield. Uh, it's owned by a construction company now, that building, but it's a beautiful safe. What is it with you and unsolved stories, David? You know, history is full of things that we cannot put our fingers on definitively, but that is fun to explore. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. David Allison is coordinator of the Broomfield Depot Museum in mystery-filled Broomfield, Colorado. If there's something you wonder about in Colorado, let us know. We can try to ferret out the answer. Head over to cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And that's Colorado Matters for today. There's no mystery to the names of the folks who make our show happen. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. We love to hear from you. On Twitter, we're at Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 